begin with a few thank yous. Um, even though Peter Knuckles could not be here, I am delighted and honored that he read my work so seriously and um, made such helpful comments to it. And, um, and I'm just surprised and honored that he would take that time, and I appreciate that. I'm grateful to have Bishop Smith here and colleagues, uh, friends and parishioners. I see lots of adventures out there. That's wonderful. Um, I'm sort of startled by the number in the room. I'm, I'm both honored and humbled. Uh, particularly people at Advent have seen me sort of preoccupied these last eight years, and the intent that you have for me and the interest you take in this honors me. I'm also delighted that both Tomas and Lisa Marie are here. We started out in 2004 in Dr. Parker's historical <coughs> course um, coming in together, and they came back to see the last one of us uh, finally make it, so thank you all for that. And I owe, of course, a great debt to Dr. Parker, who took a great interest in my topic and um, encouraged me to pursue it and was very helpful in, in, the, in the writing of it. And more than anything, I'm delighted to have my family here, particularly my parents who made the trip from Colorado. Um, my siblings came with them to help them. Shelley and Lizzie are both here, and I am glad of that. This dissertation concerns the interface between the Oxford movement and the American Episcopal Church in the 19th century. From the very first publication of the Tracts for the Times, number one, the Oxford movement emphasized the spiritual independence of the Church of England from its establishment by the English state. The movement based this independence on the validity of the ministerial orders of the Church of England by virtue of the apostolic succession. As the movement progressed, some of its vanguard converted to the Roman Catholic Church, and those who remained began to argue even more stridently for the validity of Anglican orders on a par with Roman Catholic orders. It was not a new argument, but had been rehearsed on both sides for the whole history of the English Church from the Reformation. But during the 18th century, the argument on both sides had tended to center on the validity of the consecration of Matthew Parker, Queen Elizabeth's Archbishop of Canterbury. Roman Catholics argued that he had been consecrated by priests in the back room of the Nags Head Tavern in Cheapside, London, by having the Bible laid on his neck, and the word said, Receive authority to preach the gospel and claimed that the succession was broken irrevocably at that moment. But after the Oxford movement, arguments began to center on the sacrificial understanding of the Eucharist, or lack thereof, in the English Church. In 1896, Pope Leo XIII issued his bull Apostolica Curae, which declared Anglican orders absolutely null and utterly void, and he based his decision squarely on the lack of a sacrificial understanding of the Eucharist in the Church of England. He claimed that after the publication of the second book on Edward's reign in 1552, the English Church had considered the Eucharist to be, and these are his words, a bare commemoration of the sacrifice of the cross. Consequently, he said, the sacred order of priesthood had lost its chief power, that of offering sacrifice, and the Episcopate, therefore, had lost the power of consecrating sacrificing priests. Notice that the direction of the argument runs the other direction. The end 
correct understanding of the Eucharist invalidates the orders of the English Church. Leo noted that this controversy had sprung up in these last years especially, which was a reference to the Oxford movement, and he intended his bull to remove all doubt for the future. The usual historiography of the 19th century disputes over Anglican orders agrees with Leo's assessment that the controversy over the sacrificial character of the Eucharist was a product of the Oxford movement, and that in the century before the Oxford movement, the Eucharistic sacrifice did not play much of a role in English theology at all. Yet a hundred years before Leo's bull, and fifty years before the beginning of the Oxford movement, Samuel Seabury, the first bishop of the Anglican communion outside the British Isles, had written, and I quote, now, where there is an altar, there must be a sacrifice and a priest to offer it. And as Christ's apostles were, at its institution, authorized by him to offer the Christian sacrifice of bread and wine, no doubt can remain of their being priests of the Christian church in the most proper sense. Arguing from validity of Eucharist to priesthood. So my dissertation argues three things. First, that Samuel Seabury, consecrated as the first bishop for the Episcopal Church in the U.S. in 1784, developed an ecclesiology based on the paired doctrines of Eucharistic sacrifice and sacerdotal priesthood, guaranteed by the apostolic succession. The American Church developed such an understanding because it could not base its understanding of the Church on any form of state establishment. So Seabury and others after him built their ecclesiology around Eucharistic sacrifice and sacerdotal priesthood. Second, I argue that the Oxford movement borrowed substantial elements of this ecclesiology from the American church. The usual historiography has the influence running the other way. The parliamentary reforms of the 1820s and 30s, which admitted Roman Catholics and dissenters into what amounted to the chief legislative body of the Church of England, called the nature of the state establishment of the church into question. And so the Oxford movement responded by emphasizing the linked doctrines of Eucharistic sacrifice and apostolic commission. And thirdly, I argue that recent scholarship on the Eucharistic thought of the Oxford movement has missed its ecclesiological and political dimensions. Scholars have tended to see the movement's elevation of the Eucharist as part of its overall piety and not as part of its definition of church as church. I argue instead that the Eucharistic theology lay at the heart of the movement's response to the political situation of parliamentary reform. First point. Clearly, the American Episcopal Church had to develop an ecclesiology different from its parent church, the Church of England. Even in those colonies where the Church of England was established, the church in America had to get along without bishops. Colonists connected bishops with monarchy, which led many, even Episcopalians, to resist the introduction of bishops to the colonies. Connecticut would be the first diocese in the American church which would achieve, which, to develop its ecclesiology and in which it achieved its most American expression. The church established by the colony of Connecticut was congregational. Yale College was founded to train clergy for this congregational establishment, but in 1722, Samuel Johnson and the rest of the, of the faculty at Yale read themselves in to the Church of England, 
They were reading from a newly donated library, and they became convinced that their Presbyterian orders were invalid. So they traveled to England to receive ordination by bishops and returned to Connecticut to foster a dissenting Episcopal church. The Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in England supported them and also began to send missionary clergy to other New England colonies. But the Church of England struggled to grow in the new colonies. Indeed, throughout the whole of the colonies, it labored under the disadvantage of having no resident bishops. Anyone seeking ordination had to make the journey to England and then the return trip. This limited ordination to those who could afford the trip or who could convince their parish to pick to aid them. And even then, about one in five died in the journey, not counting those who simply didn't come back. Throughout the 18th century, members of the Church of England and the New England colonies, especially the clergy sent by the SPG, began to advocate for a resident episcopate. The SPG in England also warmly supported the idea, but dissenters in England and members of the Congregational and Presbyterian Churches in America formed committees of correspondence to keep one another informed of the developments on both sides of the Atlantic. The committees of correspondence succeeded in raising enough doubt in the government of England about how bishops would be received in the colonies to prevent any action. And so the colonies continued without a bishop until 1784. In 1782, despairing that bishops could be obtained for the American church any time soon, given the hostilities between the colonies and England, William White proposed an interim solution. He published a pamphlet called The Case for the Episcopal Church in the United States Considered. He proposed that bishops should be elected for the American church and provisionally consecrated by the College of Presbyters in order to provide the church with the necessary superintendents. But when the pamphlet reached Connecticut, the clergy there, successors of those Yale clergy who had read themselves out of a congregational establishment and into the Church of England, decided that they had to take action. The clergy of Connecticut met in convention in March of 1873, the first voluntary convention of clergy in the Anglican Communion. They elected Jeremiah Leeming as their bishop, but he declined for reasons of health. The ballot fell next to Samuel Seabury, who sailed for England on the 7th of July of the same year to seek consecration at the hands of the English archbishops. But neither archbishop could see the way clear to consecrate Seabury without requiring of him the oath of loyalty to King George, which obviously Seabury could not take. And Parliament would not authorize his consecration without that loyalty, fearing how such an action might be received in Connecticut. Even an act of the Connecticut legislature stating that it had no objection did not succeed in removing the obstacles in England for his consecration. So after a year and a half of fruitless negotiation, Seabury journeyed north to Scotland and appealed to the bishops of the disestablished and penalized Episcopal Church of Scotland. The Scottish bishops agreed to consecrate Seabury and did so on the 14th of November, 1784. The next day, Seabury and his consecrators signed a concordat of agreement between the churches of Scotland and Connecticut. They acknowledged that the spiritual power of the church was independent of any lay power, and no lay power could deprive it, a reference to their disestablishment by King William. Seabury also agreed what he could do to introduce the Scottish Eucharistic service into the American church. Here we need to take a little detour.
At the Glorious Revolution of 1688, Parliament had deposed James II because of his Roman Catholicism and asked William of Orange to take the throne. A number of bishops, however, believing in the divine right of kings as well as of bishops, could not abjure their oath of loyalty to King, um, to King James and take the new one to William. These bishops became known as the non-jurors. William also disestablished the Episcopal Church of Scotland and established the Presbyterian Kirk in return for the favors that the aid that they had given him. This led to a paradox. An established Episcopal Church in England and an established Presbyterian Church in Scotland, both established by the same monarch. Obviously, the bishops of the Episcopal Church of Scotland became de facto non-jurors when William disestablished their church. In, in the Concordat, both parties, Scotland and Connecticut, denied any lay power could deprive bishops of the church of their spiritual authority. But when the non-jurors, both in England and Scotland, were deprived of their living, they were also freed from any conformity to the Book of Common Prayer. The non-jurors began serious liturgical scholarship, publishing for the first time in English a number of the ancient Greek liturgies. And they began to notice a number of deficiencies in the English liturgy. A group of non-jurors, who became known as the usagers, sought the restoration of four ancient usages to the liturgy to make clear that the Eucharist was a sacrifice. These four usages are an oblation of the elements, that is, an explicit offering of them to God, mixing water into the wine in the chalice, an invocation of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts of consecration, and prayers for the dead at the Eucharist. All of those usages had been suppressed in the English liturgy in 1552, precisely to make it clear that the Eucharist was not a true and proper sacrifice. Certainly, English theology allowed that the Eucharist was a sacrifice, but the usual language was that it was a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving in commemoration of the one true sacrifice of the cross. But the 1552 liturgy carefully avoided an offering of the gifts to God and did not have an invocation of the Holy Spirit. There were high church bishops and clergy who did consider the Eucharist a sacrifice, but they had to supply those missing elements in their own minds. The usagers introduced all four usages into their revisions of the liturgy, and all four found their way into the Eucharistic liturgy of the Scot Scottish Episcopal Church. And that was the liturgy that Seabury agreed to endeavor to introduce to the American church. And in fact, he succeeded. Seabury is a much misunderstood figure in the American church. Marion Hatchett, one of the prime movers behind the 1979 revision of the American prayer book, accused Seabury of deception, both deceiving his Scottish consecrators about what he really believed about the Eucharist and his own Connecticut clergy to get that liturgy introduced. Even William White, who knew Seabury personally, thought that Seabury had adopted his theology wholesale from his Scottish consecrators and hadn't really understood what he was agreeing to. But Seabury's own Eucharistic theology was, in fact, quite advanced. His grandson, in his biography of the bishop, included an excerpt from a sermon that Seabury preached three decades before his consecration in Scotland, in which he referred to the Eucharist as a true and proper sacrifice, which pleaded Christ's sacrifice before God. 
After his consecration, he worked faithfully to build up the church in Connecticut and to deepen the Eucharistic understanding of the church. He published his own Eucharistic service for use in the Diocese of Connecticut before the Episcopal Church could publish its first official prayer book. Seabury introduced all four usages. In fact, and particularly, he introduced the words, which we now offer unto thee, concerning the bread and the wine, after the words of institution, making it clear that the church was offering the sanctified gifts and not just bread and wine. And in an interesting twist, when the first American book was published in 1789, those words were included in all capital letters in case you should miss them. He also included prayers for the dead after the consecration of the Eucharist while the elements remained on the altar. This made it clear that the church pleaded these prayers on the basis of the merits of the Eucharist. This high Eucharistic doctrine had a very specific purpose in Seabury's overall theology. It provided a reason for episcopacy. Obviously, the American church could not connect the divine right of kings to the divine right of bishops in the way that James I had expressed in his dictum, no bishop, no king. Modern sociological research into the function of sacrifice can provide an insight into why Seabury concentrated on the sacrificial aspect of the Eucharist. According to this theory, sacrifice serves two purposes within a sacrificing community. First, it establishes solidarity among those who participate in the meal. Sacrifice always has reference to a meal. In ancient Near Eastern practice, hospitality and a shared meal created kinship. One could not raise a hand against one's companion. And if the meal included the deity, the kinship was even stronger. Sociologists call this the atoning aspect of sacrifice. It at ones, atones the participants. In both ancient Hebrew sacrifice and Greek culture, the body of the animal even served as an ideogram for the society. Certain classes of people received particular cuts of meat. The priests got the best bits, and people at the other end of the scale the worst bits. And the deity received a very particular portion through etherealization, that is, turning it into smoke, a sweet-smelling odor. And secondly, sacrifice can be used to remove impurity or chaotic elements from the community. In every sacrifice of an animal, and of grain as well, some portion is rendered unavailable as food. In the Hebrew case, it was the portion of the animal burnt outside the camp. This removed dislocations within the community. But that aspect of sacrifice also establishes a hierarchy within a community. The more that the sacrifice concentrates on expiation, the removal of sin, the more it is concerned with highlighting the role of the priesthood. Think, for instance, of the reservation of the cup in the Catholic Mass to the priest and its denial to the laity. Of course, Seabury was writing a good century before any of this research had been done, but his theology of Eucharist fits quite well with these ideas. In his first Episcopal charge to the Diocese of Connecticut, he encouraged his clergy to prepare persons to receive confirmation, a rite obviously that had not been available in the colonies. He wanted people to receive confirmation because, and I quote, it gives them a right to approach Christ's table and to feast with their brethren on the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist, the memorials of Christ's death. Eucharist creates kinship. 
In this charge, he also went on to locate identity as Episcopalian in sharing communion with one's bishop. For Seabury, participation in the Eucharist, the feast upon the sacrifice, created the church and defined its limits. He also upheld the expiatory character of the Eucharistic sacrifice in a new way. He went so far as to say that while baptism removed original sin and pre-baptismal sin, only participation in the Eucharist and in the absolution that accompanied the general confession was the remedy for post-baptismal sin. He combined two er earlier English works, one of John Johnson called The Unbloody Sacrifice and Altar Unveiled, and a sermon by Bishop Beveridge on frequent communion. In his own work, an earnest persuasive to frequent communion. In it, he encouraged people to receive communion even if they considered themselves unworthy because the Eucharist mediated the merits of Christ's passion for the forgiveness of sins. Using Johnson's work in that same sermon, he also argued that when Christ consecrated the first Eucharist, he consecrated the apostles as the first Christian priests and that their successors and those ordained by them were priests in the true sense, that is, capable of sacrificing and mediating God's forgiveness. He then pleaded for a more regular celebration of the Eucharist weekly at least, if not daily during the high holy seasons, for comfort of the participants. He went farther than most English theologians before him, and even farther than most of his non-juror consecrators. In one of his sermons, Seabury said that prayers offered at the Eucharist in the presence of the consecrated elements on the altar were more effective than prayers offered at other times. He believed that participation in the communion mediated forgiveness of sins to the participants and even hinted that it was all the only means for forgiveness of sins. In presenting the consecrated bread and wine to God, the church pleaded the merits of Christ's sacrifice. The Eucharist represented Christ's sacrifice to God as well as to the participant, a departure from most Protestant Eucharistic theology. It pleaded Christ's sacrifice before God and mediated forgiveness of sins to the participant. Just to be clear, when most English theologians wrote about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, they were concerned with the presence of Christ to the worshiper. Modes of presence fell into three broad categories, memorialist, receptionist, and virtualist. The memorialist position argued that Christ was present to the memory and contemplation of the worshiper. Just what Leo said, that it became a mere commemoration of the cross. In the receptionist position, Christ was really present to the spirit of the worshiper. The spirit of the worshiper entered Christ's presence during the Eucharist. And the virtualist position taught that Christ was present by power, that is in Latin virtue, and effect. Most of the usagers were virtualists. But Seabury was arguing something different. He focused on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist to God. Most Protestant theologians said that the Eucharist in some way, real way represented or commemorated Christ's worship, Christ's sacrifice to the worshiper, but Seabury argued that it represented or commemorated that sacrifice to God. The church, said Seabury, presented itself under the bread and the wine, transformed into the body and the blood of Christ. And this presentation 
pleaded Christ's merits before God. So for Seabury, clearly the Eucharist had ecclesiological implications. It established solidarity of those within the church and required and established a hierarchy within the church, sacrificing priests and bishops to ordain them. My second point. Many of these themes concerning the Eucharist would enter the writings of the Oxford movement. John Henry Hobart, Bishop of New York, 11th in the American succession, was consecrated in 1811. He read Seabury's Eucharistic writings and adopted his theology. Before his consecration as bishop, he wrote several devotional works intended for a missionary purpose. He was assistant rector at Trinity Church, New York, now Wall Street, and clergy from all over New York wrote him asking for devotional works to strengthen the faith of their flock and to explain it to the unchurched. The Presbyterians were making inroads upstate, and Episcopalians felt the need to compete and to inculcate good church principles. So Hobart wrote two works, a companion for the altar and a companion for the festivals and fasts of the church, both of which remained in publication for 50 years. He acknowledged his debt to Seabury's Eucharistic theology and also used the works of several high church English divines on church government. These works produced a storm of controversy when Presbyterians and Congregationalists got hold of them because of Hobart's claims for the exclusive validity of the Eucharist of the Episcopal Church. So in 1806 and 07, he and others engaged in a newspaper and pamphlet polemic with several well-respected Presbyterians. Hobart edited those articles and published an apology for apostolic order, which also remained in publication for over 50 years. And he sent copies of these works to those in England whose works he had borrowed, particularly Charles Dobney. And Dobney distributed those works to other high churchmen in, in the Church of England. In 1824 and 25, for reasons of health, Hobart made a trip to England, and he met many of these people on his journey, but particularly made friendship with Hugh James Rose. They met in Rome and traveled at least part of the way back to England, and Rose became a forerunner of the Oxford movement. Rose used Hobart's works extensively in his own, giving him equal status with English divines. Also in England, Hobart published two volumes of his own sermons to counteract the impression there that the American church did not hold to high church principles. Hobart even met the young John Henry Newman at Oriel College, though Newman was unimpressed by Hobart, at least his physical appearance, writing to his sister that the man had dirty fingernails. <laughs> Despite that assessment, however, Newman and others in the Oxford movement found in the American church an example of a church entirely independent of establishment by the state. And so when Parliament began to admit Roman Catholics and dissenters, the presumption that the Church of England was the nation in its religious aspect disappeared forever. A new justification for the existence of the Church of England had to be provided. And from the very first, the Oxford movement appealed to the apostolic succession and the Eucharistic sacrifice as the source of the Church's authority. In 1833, Parliament dissolved ten bishoprics in the Church of Ireland, the established Protestant Church. Irish Catholics resented the tithes that they had to pay for these bishoprics, many of which existed only on paper. 
John Keeble, among others, saw this as the ultimate usurpation of the church's authority by a secular state. At the opening of the courts of Assize in Oxford that year, he preached a sermon that he entitled National Apostasy. Newman always considered that sermon to be the beginning of the movement. A few days after Keeble's sermon, Hugh James Rose convened a number of concerned persons at his rectory in Hadley in what became known as the Hadley Conference. Those in attendance laid out what they considered to be the principle of apostolic succession as, as the source of authority for the church. Arthur Philip Percival summarized their understanding of this principle as follows. First, participation in the body and blood of Christ is essential for Christian life. Second, the body and blood is conveyed to Christian, Christians only by the hands of the successors of the apostles and their delegates. And third, those successors and delegates are the current bishops and priests of the church. Notice the direction of the argument, from Eucharist to succession. So here, even the, the apostolic succession is made to center on the Eucharist. The Eucharistic theology of the Oxford movement was concerned as much with ecclesiology, that is, with the understanding of church as church, as with holiness of life. Seabury had said the same thing by making participation in the Eucharist mark of membership in the church. The question of which Eucharist, and celebrated by whom, becomes a part of the economy of salvation. And so the nature of the government of the church is not a matter of indifference. This allowed Seabury and the Oxford movement to make the distinction between themselves and Roman Catholicism and what they called ultra-Protestantism. In 1839, Newman wrote a long article for the British critic on the American church, and he quoted the works of Hobart and Seabury. He claimed that the existence of the American church proved the vitality of the English church. We have proof, he wrote, and I quote, that the church of which we are is not the mere creation of the state, but has an independent life with a kind of her own and fruit after her own kind. He summarized the doctrine of the American church. They have gone forward, he said, from one truth to another, from the apostolic commission to the succession, from the succession to the office. In the office they have discerned the perpetual priesthood, in the perpetual priesthood the sacrifice, and in the sacrifice the glory of the Christian church, its power as fount of grace and blessedness as the gate of heaven. In reality, Seabury had argued exactly the other direction, from the church to the sacrifice, to the priesthood, to the commission, to the succession. Newman was not the only Tractarian to refer to American theologians, although not all of them would cite their sources. A.P. Percival wrote the 35th tract called The People's Interest in Their Minister's Commission. In some places, it is almost a word-for-word -word quote of the preface of Hobart's Companion for the Altar, stating that only the apostolic succession guarantees Christ's presence with his church to the end of the ages, exactly Hobart's language. Percival also wrote his own Apology for Apostolic Succession, which followed Hobart's outline nearly exactly, but without a single reference to him. Pusey in the 81st tract referred to the American church, saying that it was free to express the sacrificial character of the Eucharist in a way that the English church was not. 
and he cited the liturgy of the American book as the clearest expression of that doctrine. He preached a sermon called The Holy Eucharist, A Comfort to the Penitent in 1843, for which he was condemned by the, the University of Oxford, and he followed in that sermon the outline of Seabury's earnest persuasive to frequent communion. And although Seabury had used two pre-existing English works, which Pusey could also have used, Pusey followed Seabury's combination of those two works and included some arguments unique to Seabury. The Tractarians and other English high churchmen, however, objected to the inclusion of the laity in the legislating conventions of the American church, and that may account for their reticence to acknowledge the American sources in their writings. But their own silence has led to a silence in the scholarship. While a number of historians have pointed out the interesting coincidence of Hobart's journey to England in 24 and 25, none so far has traced out the extent of the American influence on the Oxford movement. My dissertation attempts to fill that lacuna in the scholarship. The third point, I argue, is that the emphasis on the Eucharistic sacrifice was not something ancillary to the political aspect of the movement. Only two monographs exist on the Eucharistic theology of the Oxford movement, and both of them treated as part of the overall piety of the movement and miss the ecclesiological significance. In both the American church and the Oxford movement, the Eucharistic sacrifice is an, an integral part of the doctrine of apostolic succession. Participation in the feasts upon the sacrifice defined the extent of the church and required sacrificial priesthood made possible by the apostolic commission. Eucharistic sacrifice is part of what defines the church as church, and therefore essential to its independence from the state. In fact, it is possible to look at the Oxford movement as one of those several, several 19th century movements which sought to position the church in an increasingly secular society. Moeller in Germany responded to the secularization of the church in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars with his own communion ecclesiology, basing the identity of the church not in its hierarchy or support by the state, but in the Eucharist. The American Episcopal Church was simply confronted by this secular trend half a century before the rest of Europe. The convergence of Seabury's consecration by his Scottish non-jurors his own theology and the vigor of Hobart's efforts to support and defend the church led them to refine an argument that would prove useful in other contexts. The friendship between Hobart and the English high churchmen, particularly Rose, provided the channel which mediated this American definition of the church as church to the Oxford movement in its own response to parliamentary secularization. But until now, the nature of the Eucharistic theology both of the American church and its influence on the Eucharistic thought of the Oxford movement have not been sufficiently investigated, and the ecclesiological dimension has been missed. I hope my dissertation forwards that 